Here's something new and exciting. Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World is now on social media with uplifting slash mind-bending updates throughout the week. So please follow me on Facebook at David Sachs Spiritual Tools or on Instagram, David Sachs Spiritual Tools. Hi, this is David Sachs and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to tell you a story, something that happened to me uh, this week, kind of one of these uh, totally far out stories that uh, just um, God delights us with, I think, or delights me with anyway. So so, so here it is. Um, we have uh, in our house, we have a lot of kind of framed family pictures. Um, and and there's one one area in particular. It's like there's this kind of like wall-sized uh, bookshelf. And there's a counter as that's sort of like built into it. So along that counter, there are lots and lots of framed family photos. And, and they kind of go on and it's just a, a mess of photos. And then even on the bookshelf, on the levels of the bookshelf, leaning against the books, there, there are photos and things like that. And there's no design scheme to it. It, it just kind of looks like a, a, a big mishmash. Um, anyway, not so long ago, I was kind of looking at it uh, from a slight distance and I noticed there's one photo leaning against, you know, on one of the upper shelves, leaning against the books. And it's it's a black and white photo um, of an older man with a long white beard. And I'm looking at this and I, I'm wondering, like, you know, I don't know who that is. I, I have no idea how that even got there. And it's been up there for years and years and years, you know, like maybe 10 years, maybe a decade, okay? And so just out of curiosity, I walked up to this photo and I turned it over. It was like a postcard. I turned it over and it's of Walt Whitman, which is just sort of like completely unexpected because no one in our house is a fan of Walt Whitman's. No one talks about him and for... um for for those of you out there who that, that that name doesn't ring a bell, he's he's a major American poet. Like you know, like if you study American literature, you're learning about Walt Whitman. He's you know very 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 major figure. Um, and anyway, it's just sort of like odd and funny. There's well, there's Walt Whitman along with our family members. You know, so anyway, my daughter had uh, a couple of friends over from college and she was showing them these these photos and and I said to her I said do, do you know that we have a photo of Walt Whitman in our house and she was like really you know just and like where and and so I, I pointed it out and I showed her okay that's part one of the story Here, here's part two now <laughs> um uh, every once in a while, if there's someone who newly subscribes to the podcast, I'll, I'll, I'll send a, a, just a note just saying hello and, and uh, just curious how people find these talks that, that you know, this, this, this particular talk, because I, I don't advertise them. And so, you know, and, um, and especially when, when, when someone is sub, uh, pr- subscribing from, from a faraway place. So, so I see that someone is subscribed, maybe, maybe they're listening now, I don't know, from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And, and I'm wondering, like, you know, here I am in Los Angeles, and again, don't advertise these talks, just curious, like, how that person came across this, this line of talks. So, so you know, I, I, I send an email, you know, welcoming him, saying hi, and uh, just asking out of curiosity, you know, how'd you find these talks? So now this, everything that I just told you happened this past week, okay? It's all this past week. He writes me back and he says, "Um, I found you by accident, you know, in heavy quotation marks. And then he, he said, I found you by accident while I was Googling Walt Whitman. And, and... And his his reflections on the soul, 
you know, Walt Whitman on the soul. And somehow in that Google search, uh, these talks came up. And then he said, thank you for your work. So anyway, um, I just thought I just thought that you might enjoy that story. <laughs> and, and hopefully you, you who wrote that email might enjoy that story, since you don't know the other half of, uh, of, of, of what you stumbled into. In these talks, you will find that everything is connected. All of life is connected in surprising and, you know, sometimes very humorous ways. So anyway, there you go. There's, there's my story. Um, I want to talk about some, some very, very deep things. And, and I, I, I was able to come up in, with one line, something that summarizes uh, a lot of the content um, that I've been saying over the last, you know, decade at least. So those of you who have been, you know, listening to the talks, tuning in, I, I think that you'll appreciate how much information is being summed up in this in this one line. And, and I'm going to unpack it for you. So let me just tell it to you, and then I'll, I'll unpack it for you. And these are really words to live by, because um, this is going to explain a lot of stuff that's like, very difficult for people to understand, I think, in, in my opinion anyway. So here's the line. There is no contradiction between concealment and closeness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that again. There's no contradiction between concealment and closeness. And let me just set about to explain what I mean by that. Um, uh, a lot of people do what, what I call bad math. And, and what I mean by that is people make this calculation in their mind that God is as close to me as I feel his presence. Again, people feel as though that there's this direct correlation. God is as close to me as I feel his presence. And that is entirely incorrect. It's totally incorrect. And again, let's go back to our, our, our catchphrase for the day. There's no contradiction between concealment and closeness. So you have to understand something about, you know, how we understand the world. And, you know, we say Torah to met, meaning the Torah is truth. So we say that this is not just you know, our opinion, we, we, we are bold enough to say that this is actually the truth. And the truth is, is that they're, let's call them stratifications of divine light. Meaning to say that in the, in the upper worlds, in, in heaven, if you will, um, just to put it very simply, the, the expanse of light and, and, and the revelatory quality of that light to be able to see more of God is, is, is very great. Now remember, no one sees all of God except God. God is the only one who sees all of God. <laughs> um, in fact, that would be one of the definitions of God, the one who sees all of God. <laughs> um, even angels, who are creations of God, are limited in their understanding of God. And we know in the, uh, in the prayer book, one of the lines that we say in the prayer book is we, we quote the angels who say, where is the place of his glory? Meaning to say that, that they have a quantumly higher grasp of the presence of God and the reality of God. But even they can't see all of God because, again, only God sees all of God. And that's also one of the... Um, one of the direct interpretations of what it means when God says to, to Moshe, to Moses, um, no one can see my face and live. Meaning to say, what does it mean to see God's face? That means to see all of God. So again, no one, you can't see all of God and, and still be alive, right? So, so that actually, you know, opens up a, a, a whole field of thought, which our generation, you know, is, is very challenged in, which is people think when it comes to spirituality and maybe even um, performing mitzvahs, things like that, like, do I want to 
do these things that, that God is telling me to do? You know, will I do these things? And so a lot of people, especially people who are, you know, feel that they are educated and, and sophisticated and things like that, they'll say, well, you know, if you can explain them to me, if you can completely explain them to me, if you can explain God to me, then I will, you know, do these things. Um, but one of the things that people don't fully appreciate is that we will never fully understand God. And that's one of the things, by definition, that makes God God, since only God sees all of God. In other words, one of the premises of God is that he cannot be fully understood. And and that just seems to me to be rational. You know, like I kind of once thought about it this way. Like imagine you're ha- holding a cup a cup in your hand and you're standing, you know, on a beach like with your toes in the water, right? And you're just kind of looking at this cup and you're looking at the ocean. Can one cup hold all the waters of the ocean? And the answer of course is is no. So if that's the case, then how can my brain, which is just one cup, really, right, made by God, how can my brain hold all of God? It's just, that, that to me is a very rational thought. In other words, I, I think that we can very rationally arrive at the idea that there are limitations to what we can ever know, especially when it comes to the, the ultimate, which is God. So, so that means that humility is an intelligent choice. <laughs> See, a lot of people equate humility with submission, <laughs> humility with defeat. I will be humble before you because I can't beat the heck out of you. <laughs> so therefore, I, I have to switch modes. I have to switch into survival mode and I will be humble instead, you know? because I have been defeated. But there is another manifestation of humility, which is just the recognition that there is something legitimately greater. <laughs> okay, so, so let's get back to this idea. What got us on this was this, this notion of stratifications of light, that in the, the highest realms, we, we just have this, you know, this, this awesome light, which doesn't reveal all of God, but that's the highest revelation. Now, you ready for this? Remember, we're trying to explain the following statement, that there is no contradiction between concealment and closeness. So here's the thought, and this is a very, very, very important thought, very foundational thought, which is that God is as, is as present in this world, in this realm, in this dimension that we live in, as he is in the highest realms He's just more concealed. You understand? God is equally present in this realm as he is in the highest, highest realms of heaven. But he's just concealed. So now, with that in mind, I think we can understand more fully this idea that there's no contradiction between concealment and closeness. And that you don't have to feel God's presence to know that he's right here, right now. That's important because a lot of times our minds are thinking, but our hearts are closed. This unfortunately is kind of almost the default setting of the human condition. Our minds are working hyperactively and our hearts are closed. And so so we feel like if, if I don't feel his presence, right? And why don't I feel his presence? Because my heart is closed. If I don't feel his presence, then he can't be here, right? That's the mind working, right? Trying to understand why the heart is reacting that way. But no, he can be equally present, totally present. I just don't feel him. You know, 
The Kutzke Rebbe says one of the classic all-time Torahs, one of the all-time greatest teachings. You know, this is like a cash Torah. You have to just know this inside and out, be able to say it over in a second if you ever have need to, or if you're ever thinking about it, right? That's what Reb Shlomo calls a cash Torah. It means it's got to be in your pocket at all time. You've got to be able to pull it out at any moment because you know it so well, right? Rav Noach Weinberg, the founder of Eishat Torah, um, Oliver Shalom used to say you, to his students, you have to know what you know. See, a lot of people, you learn something, but you don't know it. <laughs> you heard it once. But if I asked you to say it over, if I asked you to tell that story with the names, you couldn't, you couldn't say it. You know why? Because you don't know what you know. It's one thing to learn it, but then it's another thing to know it. You got to know what you know. Okay? So, so the Kash Torahs, these are first on the lists of the things that you got to kn- know. Okay? So here's what the Kutzke Rebbe says. <clears throat> so it says in the Shema that, um, um, that you should put these words, meaning, you know, about the oneness of God, um, Al Levavecha. You should put these words on your heart. That's what it that's what it says in the Torah. So, so the Kutzke Rebbe has a question, and if you thought about it for a moment, you'd have the same question. What do you mean, on your heart? You should put these words in your heart. So, so the Kutzke Rebbe says something devastating. He says, let's face it, how often is your heart open that you can put these words in your heart, Right? So the Torah is telling you, put these words on your heart so that in those moments where your heart actually opens, the words are there to fall in. You know, speaking of open hearts, so I want to tell you another story. Um, I once made a movie in, in Jerusalem. It was one of these uh, GIF films. I, I, I made this gorilla, <laughs> this gorilla movie studio with some people. Um, and we made these like little short films and, on Jewish subjects. And they were really cool. It was really a great, fun period. Um, and everyone who participated in this program, it's like it changed their lives. There so many amazing stories. And anyway... So we were on this uh, trip in Israel, and, and I found this, this Breslover guy. He was like this awesome guy. I don't know. He was probably in his 20s, and he was just like shining. And I, I saw him by the Kotel, near the Kotel, on, like the, on the top level of steps on, on the staircase leading down to it. And he had this giant boombox, right? You know, this, well you know, covered with stickers, like Nana Nachman type stickers. And he was just like, and, and it was playing like this, like disco beat, you know, house beat kind of electronic Rebbe Nachman kind of music, you know, which, which I never heard before, you know, it was like electrifying. Like I couldn't, never knew like Jewish music could sound like that, you know. And he was kind of just dancing and there was like a crowd of people around him, like he was this magnet, but there was nothing like, modely, you know, about this guy, you know, in terms of his ability to just like draw people in. But he was just like glowing, you know, you know, there's no other way to say it. And he had like long payas and, you know, and he just this, this, this like amazing smile, like the sun. Anyway, I'm like watching this guy with like my, my jaws dropping, just like, like looking at him, you know, and, and like this scene and this music. And I walk up to him and I say, this was at night. I said, I want to make a movie with you. <laughs> and he said, okay. You know, so, so the next day, the, the, the plot of the movie was going to be really simple. It was going to be, he's coming out of a laundromat, <laughs> just kind of going about his Monday, mundane days activities. And as he walks down the street and we'd be playing as the soundtrack to this little video, um, this this song that that I heard by the Kotel, right? This Rebbe Nachman song, and and the idea is like wherever he goes, more and more people just gravitate around him and go with him to his next stop, and they're just like dancing like crazy. That that's the that's the whole movie. It's actually online, um, 
I'll try to find you a link to it. Um, but anyway, so so we made this movie, and it was a lot of fun. It was really cool. Uh, great energy. And afterwards, you know, I hadn't really talked to him. I didn't know his his name. I didn't know his story. We had just spent the day together. And afterwards, I I came up to him and I thanked him. I said, you know, thank you so much. And he looked at me and he said, I think that we share the same root soul. So that's, you know, didn't expect him to say that. That was sort of heavy. And so I just kind of paused and I said, are you a lady? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I'm a lady. So, you know, it's not so common to be a lady, you know. There are a lot of communities that have no levium at all. So, so that was interesting. And then I thought, you know, my mother is a bat kohen. My mother's father was a kohen. And I wanted to ask him, is your mother a kohen? Is your mother a bat kohen? And then I thought to myself, you know, this has been like a magical experience with this guy. I don't want to blow it. <laughs> you know, I'm a lady. He's a lady. It's a good story. Let's just stop there, you know? So I don't ask him if his mother's a bat kohen. And there's a pause, and he looks to me and he says to me, he says to me, is your mother a bat kohen? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And then he says to me, let me tell you a story. <laughs> he says, a group of people, right? Like, just he just kind of fell in with a crowd or... I don't know I don't know how this group of people came together exactly. But he said a group of us went into the tunnels under the kotel. And he said that it was the middle of the night, like two, three, four AM, okay? And there was like a whole group that went, you know, in this in these underground tunnels, and you can get the clo- that's the closest that you can get to where the Holy of Holies was, right? So, you know, it's a special thing to do if you ever get to Jerusalem. You, you take one of these tunnel tours, like they obviously went at this rogue time, like you can't go in the middle of the night, you know, they just kind of went rogue and went in there, you know. But, um, but anyway, uh, you can take a tour during the day and and they'll tell you, like, this is the closest spot like in the world, to the Holy of Holies, and then they pause there and people pray and things like that. So it's a special thing. Anyway, he said, after we got out of the tunnels, we were kind of just, you know, taking it in, the experience that we had just had, and we looked at each other, and we realized, it came up, and we realized every single person there was a levy whose mother was a bat kohen. Now, let me just tell you the odds against that. Let's start in the trillions to one, okay? <laughs> and we can just stop there, because that's, that's as far as my math goes. <laughs> so, you know, as Reb Shlomo would say, what do we know? What do we know? What do we know? What do we know? The way God is guiding the world and we may never even find out during our lifetime. We may never even find out. But as my friend told me long ago, and these are, again, words to live by, after 120, after we live our full lives, and we go up to the next world, we're going to get the answer to all of our questions, but we're not going to be able to do anything about it. Now, we don't have the answer to all of our questions, but we can still do something about it. This is, this is an amazing thing. So, 
So the lesson is, if I'm if, if I'm just going to kind of sum it up again, there's no contradiction between concealment and closeness. You may not see God, but that doesn't mean that he's not right there. So Rabbi Chaim Sitran, who's a big Talmud Chacham, big Torah scholar, I heard him speak on this, and he said the following. He said that when he was younger, he asked his Rebbe the following question. If we say that there are like unlimited worlds, and when you hear the word worlds, don't think it, of it in the sci-fi sense of planets, you know, things like that. When, when the Torah talks about worlds, or more accurately in Hebrew, olamos, you know, that's how you'll see it um, written in Sfarim. It, it's really talking about these stratifications of light. And they get, you know, higher and higher, you know, in terms of the, the, the degree of revelation, but of course never fully, fully exposing God, because only God sees all of God. But if we've got this notion of like almost this infinite number of olomos, right? And we say that the world that we dwell in, you and me right now, that we're dwelling in right now, that this is the lowest of all the worlds. How do we know? This is what he asked his ready. How do we know that this is the lowest of all the worlds? If there's so many worlds. So it's a, it's a, it's a great question. So listen to what his Rebbe said back to him. Because again, this is going to give us a very good description of the human condition and what what it means to live in this world that we live in. Okay, he said to him back the following. He said that in this in in this place where we live right now, listen carefully. God is the most concealed he can be. Where if you look for him, you can still find him. I'll say it again. Where we live now, this is the most concealed God can be, where if you look for him, you can still find him. Now, can you imagine if God were like one degree more concealed? We wouldn't be able to find him even if we looked for him? Isn't that amazing? See, we we come at it from the standpoint that um, it feels more intuitive for us that if God wants us to serve him, then he should make himself more revealed. Right? But listen, this is God's world, and this is the way God made it, that there's some schus, some merit, some 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 gift that he's imparting to us to allow us to put in the effort to find him. That that in and of itself is an act of love on our part that angels are not privileged to. You know, like angels, it's part of their nature. It's not a failing of theirs. But it's just part of their nature and just part of the dimension that they live in that that God's presence and God's existence is an automatic. But God imagined this creation, which are you and me, human beings, who would have to actually look for him to find him. Which, if you think about it from God's perspective, if God is like the ultimate reality and the only thing that exists is God, Imagine how novel it is for God for there to be a creature that would have to search to find him (laughs) when he is all there is. And we are that creature. We are that creation. And we're the only ones in the entire universe and in all the spiritual worlds who have this awesome privilege of being able to search to find all that's there. And can you imagine the divine pleasure that that gives God when we actually put in the effort to find Him? You know, I, I, I wonder. I sometimes I just I, I scratch my head 
at the people who look at this world and just think it randomly came together. The level of exactitude in, in, in everything. You know, Rabbi, Rabbi Freeman, Svi Freeman, once said, I was in the room one time, and I love this example. It's just so, it's so great, it's so simple, and yet it's so profound. He said, if you took, we were sitting in a room together with a group, and he said, and, and he just kind of, kind of just pointed to a wall casually. He just pointed to the wall and he said, you know, if you had a team of scientists from like, you know, MIT and Caltech, and you said to them, report to me everything there is to know about that wall, and then come back to me. He said they would never return. <laughs> you know, and, and he was just talking to just a blank piece of plaster. Much less the, the human eye, right? Or, or, or any other of the, you know, wonders of nature. Okay. So, I want to go much, much, much deeper. And I want to talk about, you know, some of the other things that we experience as paradoxes, but that that aren't paradoxes. Um, they, they appear to us as paradoxes, and, and for us, they are in fact paradoxes. But in, in reality, they aren't paradoxes. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. The, the first example, of course, is this idea that, that we think that the idea of the, the concealment of God, the fact that I can't see him and the fact that he's so close is a paradox, but hopefully we explain that away. And hopefully you see now why that, that there's a, a, a real logic to that, actually. But the next couple of things that I want to talk about actually are paradoxes. And let me just say something about the nature of paradox as as I'm going to approach the subject. You know, one of the things that I learned in, in high school is, is that the nature of parallel lines, right? I'm kind of doing it with my fingers right now. The nature of parallel lines, and this is actually the definition of parallel lines, is that they never intersect. Okay? That, that, that is what makes them parallel lines, the fact that they will never, ever intersect. Now, that's in normal, two-dimensional, what we call Euclidean geometry. Just your basic geometry, right? When you're drawing lines on a page. Parallel lines will never intersect. But if you put those same lines against curved space, right? Now we're talking about in the realm of three-dimensional um, geometry or non-Euclidean geometry. If you put parallel lines against curved space, the amazing thing is parallel lines intersect. That's awesome. In other words, when you start adding dimensions, the laws that seem absolutely ironclad in our world change in other dimensions, because you're adding dimensions that we don't have access to. So I like that example, because to me, when we start talking about some spiritual applications of this in a moment, you'll see that in our realm, there are certain truths that remain truths inexorably in our realm, like the fact that parallel lines don't intersect. That, that is true, Right? in two-dimensional geometry. But once you get into the higher worlds, the higher dimensions, these things that seem like paradoxes for us are not paradoxes. That's the point. That's the point. We don't necessarily have access to those realms, but we have to understand that something can be true and the opposite of that same thing can be true. So I'll give you the most famous example of this, but I want to discuss a, a different example of it, actually. The most famous example of this is how could it be that we have free choice to do absolutely anything that we want to do, 
And yet God already knows what it is that we're going to choose. So you say, if God already knows what it is that we're going to choose, then we don't have free choice. We have to choose that thing. But the Torah says, no, you have free choice. So I have free choice. I can do absolutely anything. But God knows what I'm going to do. How can those two things go together? And this is one of the riddles of philosophy for, for thousands of years, okay? And yet the Torah says both of these things are true. It's true in this world that we do have free choice, and it's also true that God, that God knows. And there's no contradiction. So uh, Rabbi Tapp, um here in Los Angeles gave a, a wonderful uh, illustration of this that I, that I hadn't heard before, and I, I really appreciate this. I, re- I really think this is nice. He says, so how can it be that, that, that you have free choice, but God already knows? So he says, imagine you're watching a basketball game, and it's, this is kind of taking place in real time, this basketball, t- this basketball game. And someone uh, gets ready to, to, shoot, to shoot the ball. And you know that at this point, this basketball player can either get the ball in the hoop or he can miss the shot. That's, that's just reality as we know. He can score the basket or he can miss it. Okay. So that's the realm of free choice. Now imagine that this game was videotaped and you are watching after the game is already over and you get, and let's say he made the basket in real time. When you get up to that moment, you know, (laughs) you know that he got the basket in. It can only, you already know what's going to happen. And only that thing can happen. He can't miss the shot at that point. He can only get the shot in at that point. So God, as the Rambam says, exists inside, inside time, but he also exists outside of time. So God is with us in the moment, but God also simultaneously sees the past, the present, and the future. So in the reality of the present tense, we have free choice. But God already knows how you're going to use your free choice since God already sees the future and already knows the future. And in the future, he already knows that it only goes one way. So there, there's a, a, another example, and I, I, I just like that because I never heard that before. And it's, a, I think, a very nice explanation of something that's exceedingly complex. Exceedingly complex, right? Okay. But I want to give you another paradox. And, and like I say, let's, let's go deeper into just another, another part of what it means to be a human being. So, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says something very, very deep. On the one hand, the Talmud says, Kol which means that everything is in the hands of heaven except our awareness, right? Our, our awareness, our awe of heaven. That, that's up to us. Rabbi Nachman says, that all of our mitzvahs and all of our averas, meaning everything we do right and everything we do wrong, is also in the hands of heaven. And yet, at the same time, we know that we're responsible for our actions in this world and that we have free choice. So how can those two things go together? So the answer is, we don't know. But those two things go together. They're both true. And I want to I want to just go deeper into this idea now. Now Rav Frimer says in the Eretzvi, 
We just read the Parsha of Behaloscha. And it's talking about lighting the, the flames of the menorah. And Behaloscha is a strange word for the Torah to use for lighting, lighting the flames. Because we have another word in Hebrew, which is sort of our go-to word for lighting flames, and that's lehadlik. Like, for instance, when we light the Shabbos candles, we say, lehadlik ner shel Shabbos. You know, God who commanded us to light the candles. Or for Hanukkah, we say, lehadlik ner shel Hanukkah. Right? God who commanded us to light the, 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 the menorah. Um, so why, when we're talking about the menorah, in the Holy Temple, in the Beis HaMikdash, why is the Torah using this word behalosecha? It's a very different word than lehadlik, which is the word that we're used to. So Rashi has the same question. And by the way, behalosecha has as its root the Hebrew word aliyah, or ola, meaning to go up. So, so really, it's saying that you have to light the flame so that the flames go up. And that's what Rashi explains, that, that that word is being used because you have to, you can't just kind of put the wick in the presence of the fire or just kind of, you, you have to make sure, and we've all had this experience where you have to kind of hold the wick inside the flame for a while till you see that, that it's lit on its own. And, and that's the divine command. And the... The classic drusha, the classic explanation of this, um, we're going to say something very different in a moment, but the classic explanation of this is that when you want to inspire someone else, right, or if you want to inspire yourself, you have to light the flame to the degree that it goes up on its own. Meaning to say that, that you want to create an inspired person who isn't dependent on you for inspiration anymore. That this person is lit, and now the flame is going up on its own. Meaning to say that that person is now capable of sustaining their own relationship with God and their own divine path and going deeper. That's the classic explanation of this dynamic. So, so but Ralph Frimmer sees something else here. He sees two dimensions of reality being played out in terms of the lighting of the menorah. The first dimension of reality is our personal responsibility, the ability to light the flame. But there's another dimension, which is that the flame is now going to go up on its own. Okay, And what he sees in that is just what we've been discussing up until now. The idea that we light in this dimension of reality, meaning to say we are responsible for our own actions. But then the flame goes up on its own, meaning to say from the heavenly perspective, Everything that we do is in the hands of heaven because it's on its own, meaning independent of us. All that we do, like Rebbe Nachman says, all of our mitzvahs, all of our averas, everything we do right, everything we do wrong is in the hands of heaven. That's the flame going up on its own in those higher dimensions where everything is in the hands of heaven. And yet, the lighting doesn't get lit unless we strike the flame. And that's the realm of reality where we are simultaneously responsible for everything that happens. Okay, now with this in mind, Rav Firmer brings us a, a teaching from the Ari and it's a very classic teaching. I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but you may not have known that it was from the Ari. And that's the following. When we were getting ready to leave Egypt, right right before we left Egypt, 
the Ari teaches that we had descended to the 49th level of impurity. Now, now everybody knows that the lowest level of impurity is the 50th level of impurity. And the Ari says the following, had we descended one more stage, like had we stayed in Egypt any longer, that we would have descended to the 50th level of impurity and we never would have gotten out. We never would have gotten out. Now, most people, when they hear that teaching, they go, I get it. Just like there are 50 levels of Kedusha, of holiness, there's 50 levels of impurity, right? You always have this almost Newtonian opposite action and reaction dynamic, which Shlomo Melech talks about in, in Kahelis, that, that for every, you know, positive force, spiritually speaking, there's a negative force. We know this, just like you had Moshe and Bilam. You have, you have all sorts of examples of this. Yaakov and Esav, you have many, many examples of this throughout Torah. So, so, so you say, okay, so there's 50 levels of impurity, and if, I had gotten, if we had gotten to the 50th level of impurity, we never would have gotten out. I'm good. You, you know, you don't have to tell me anything more. <laughs> Heard the teaching, I understand the teaching. Except... <laughs> There's a question here, and Rav Frimer asks it on the Ari, which is, wait a second, can't God do anything? Is anything difficult for God? And since nothing is difficult for God, what do you mean once we descended, or had we descended to the 50 level, 50th level of impurity, we never would have gotten out? Well, that that's... That poses a pretty giant theological problem, doesn't it? Because God can do anything, so he can take us out of the 50th level too. So that's Rav Frimer's question on the Ari. And, you know, I'm sure if you thought about it long enough, you could have come up with the same question. So, of course, the Ari knew that question. And he said, the, he said that we never would have gotten out of the 50th level. So that means that the Ari had an answer to this question. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said this. So Rav Frimer now is going to answer his own question on the Ari. And it's fascinating, and it goes back to the depths of what we've been talking about up until now. You see, let's just talk about the mechanics of a human being for a moment. A human being acts, but what do you do before you act? In other words, let's say for some reason you're not, you can't act anymore, meaning operate functionally in this world. But what can you do? You still have your desire. You still have your ratzon, your will, right? Because will precedes action. And, and, and that's like sort of like the, the core aspect of a person is their ratzon, their will. So, Rav Frimer explains that, do you know what the 50th level of impurity is? That the human being no longer wants that connection with God, no longer desires that connection with God. And at that point, can God still take us out? He can. But we've essentially broken the, the contract of creation, which says that this is a partnership. And this is the lighting of the light of Beloscha. It's two parts. Remember, there is the aspect that the flame goes up, but the flame only goes up once we light the flame. That's that there should be a desire within a person to, the, to attach themselves to the truth. Even if they don't know what the truth is yet. 
But the desire to attach yourself to the truth is that essential flame in your heart that drives creation, that sustains creation. You know, we have a very, very essential teaching from the Talmud that says, in the direction a person wants to go, that's the direction that a person is led. So, even if a person doesn't know the truth yet, if they desire to know the truth, circumstances will formulate around them that will lead them to the truth. And that's one of the ways that God runs the world. And by the way, and this is a bit scary, that goes for the good and for the bad. In other words, if a person desires perversity, opportunities will be created for them to pursue that that desire as well. So, but in the direction a person wants to be led, that's, that's, that's the direction that a person is led. A very interesting thing, and I know I've definitely seen that in my own life. Um, okay. So, so let's get back to it. The 50th level of impurity is when the human being essentially breaks the divine contract of creation and no longer engages in that partnership anymore. And at that point, the person is capable of being lost, not because God can't take them out anymore, but the person is no longer engaging in that relationship. And if you think about it, we can apply this to the three major holidays which is Pesach, Shavuos, right? Pesach is when God takes us out of Egypt. Shavuos is the holiday where we celebrate receiving the Torah, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and Sukkot. Those are called the Shlosh Regalim. These are the three major holidays, right? Where, um, you know, in the times of the Holy Temple, these were the three pilgrimage holidays where everyone came to Jerusalem. So we can say like this, or I'd like to say like this. Pesach is all about miracles, right? It's all about God saying, I run the world. Shavuos, where we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai, that's considered like the marriage ceremony, right? Between God and the Jewish people. And that's the partnership that's forged. And then Sukkot, and I'm going to tell you a story in a minute that's going to illustrate this in a, in a very amazing way. Sukkot is God says, everything is in your hands. <laughs> right? So Pesach, everything is in God's hands. Shavuos, it's a partnership. Sukkot, everything is in our hands. So now with that in mind, I want to tell you a story that I heard from Reb Shlomo, about the Berditch of a Rebbe. Rebbe uh, Levi Yitzchak, a Berditch of, right? One of the greatest of the Hasidic masters. Uh, so there was someone who was, who was left an orphan in Berditch of, And the father came to Rev Levi Yitzchak in a dream and said to him, you know, I, I want you to take responsibility for for my son's education. And and he he accepted and the Berdichev Rebbe did two things in private. He made Friday night Kiddush alone and he shook Lulav and Esrig, which of course is, you know, the holiday of Sukkot, right? Um, and he did that by himself also. And he let the boy see how he made Kiddush. But the time came for Lulav and Esther again, he didn't, he didn't let the boy see. And the man came to Reb Levi Yitzchak in a dream again, and he explained to him that he can't see, Right? Anyway, the boy snuck in, hid under a table to watch Rev Levi Yitzchak shake Lulav and Esrig, 
and the boy passed out. And and it was explained as follows. That when you make Kiddush Friday night, you know, you read the passages about how God created the world. When you make Kiddush Friday night, you're testifying that God runs the entire world. But when you hold the lulav and esrog in your hands, that's God saying that I'm putting the entire world in your hands. And when you think about that, that the entire world is in our hands, the boy was not capable of that and he just passed out. So you see, they're both true. They're both true. The lighting, the fact that we're responsible for our mitzvahs and everything like that, and the fact that everything is in the hands of heaven, both are true. And I understand that they're a contradiction. And yet both of them are true. And if you think about it, it's it's really, it's like endlessly profound because the idea that everything is in the hands of heaven, but at the same time that God puts everything in our hands, that everything is up to us, and they're both true. I once heard someone quoted, um, someone, his name is Stan Levy, and, and, and I heard this quote of his, and I, I've never forgotten it, because, you know, for a lot of people, any discussion of the Holocaust just is like, it's like, they, they, they can't get past an understanding of God in the presence of the Holocaust. And it's very understandable. And that's why I kind of like this this thing that I heard from him so much, because it's approaching it from a completely different... You know, you have the X-axis and you have the Y-axis. This is coming from the Z-axis, but it's just so awesome. He says the following. He says, I, I don't understand why people find it so difficult to, to fathom. There were people who did what they shouldn't have done, and there were other people who didn't do what they should have done. And seen in that light, and I'm not pretending that that's the final answer, that's going to explain everything for everyone. Don't Please don't misunderstand me. But nonetheless, just as a thought, that there were people who did what they shouldn't have done, and there were other people who didn't do what they should have done, underlies for me the extent to which the whole world is in our hands. And again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm I'm not trying to give an answer or explain away the Holocaust right now. But what I do want to say is the following. And we'll, we'll stop here. What I do want to say is that I think that anyone who wants to grow in a Torah way and is sincere in wanting to grow in a Torah way, that I think that most people, and I certainly would put myself in this category, you know, for the great majority of my life, maybe up until today, (laughs) who knows, but that the way that they set about growing in terms of Torah is to try to understand increasingly how absolutely everything is in God's hands. But what I would suggest is that if you want a full Torah vision of what the Torah is saying, is that you have to also understand simultaneously that everything is in your hands. And while those two things, we will experience them during our life and in this realm of reality that we live in, while we will experience that as an open paradox, nonetheless, both of those things are true. That everything absolutely 100% is in God's hands. And everything is also in our hands. And so God should bless us that we should have the strength 
the strength to be among those who do what they can do when they can do it. Okay. Say, if you'd like to see that video that I was talking about, if you go on YouTube and type in the words joy, Rebbe Nachman joy video, uh, you'll find it. Um, Anyway, uh, Rebbe Nachman, that's R-E-B-B-E, Nachman, N-A-C-H-M-A-N. So it's Joy, Rebbe Nachman, Joy video. Okay. Oh, by the way, it's super low quality. I couldn't figure out how to upload it, so... Um, but it's still worth Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.